Would you stand with me for our reading from the Gospels? Going to Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that Advent is always time of preparation, of making space, clearing space, making room for you, making room for the surprise of your presence, making room for the surprise of how you make yourself known in the world. I pray, God, you would give us the grace now by your spirit to make our hearts ready, our minds ready, our bodies ready. Help us to clear out everything that we need to clear out. Set aside everything that we need to set aside. All of our expectations of how you should move, what we think you ought to do, where we want to see you work, the way we think it should be. Lord, we just pray you would give us the grace to set all of that aside and that today, this day, we would prepare the way, for, that we would make the roads straight, for our God who's coming once again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Advent is about disruption. Advent is about the way that God disrupts time. Advent is about the way that God disrupts social order. Advent is about the way that God disrupts Systems and structures. Advent is about the way that God subverts principalities and powers. Advent is about creating space for the way that God turns things upside down. Advent is about expecting the unexpected. In this text from Luke, it begins by giving us an account of rulers that for us now are only a footnote people like Pilate, people like Herod, who according to the order of the day seem to be in charge. These are the people who seem to be running the world. And yet in the midst of that, these people who were of great influence and affluence, the real story is about a man, a prophet of God, who comes to the wilderness, uh, who comes to an obscure place, and who is proclaiming this message to prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight, John said. 
every valley shall be filled and every mountain hill every mountain and hill shall be made low for those of us who learned this in the king james every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be brought low so i'm thinking that as we once again enter into this advent space and we hear the proclamation that God is coming, not just that God has come in the past, but that God, God wants to come again now, that he wants to make himself known in our midst now, in our city, in our community, in our world, uh, that he's coming, that he is coming again, all of that. That whether or not this is good news depends entirely on where you're standing. Because keep in mind, Advent is disruption. Advent is about preparing way for the disruption of God. Whether or not this is good news has a lot to do with whether or not you're standing on top of the mountain or whether or not you're in the valley. <laughs> because if we're standing on the mountaintop, the proclamation that we hear is God is coming to shave off the mountains. God is coming to bring the mountains low. The proclamation of Advent that God is coming is not especially great news when you're on the mountain and it feels good and you're comfortable and you like it because it means you're going down. <laughs> But on the other hand, if you are in the valley, this is very good news. Because in the same way that God is coming to bring down the mountains, he will exalt the valleys. And so from a low place, the announcement is that we're about to be lifted. Incidentally, this is really not so much what the sermon is about. But it's so weird for me still how this works in my own life. Because the very moment I've been on the mountain for about five seconds and life starts humming... And I feel like I've got a handle. I feel like I've got a sense of order and control. I have this moment where inevitably, no matter how low I've been before, and no matter how low God has to go to bring me up, after a couple months on the mountain, I always think, I got this. Do you do that? I got this. It's fine. Lasts for about five minutes until now you're in need to be brought low again. <laughs> so, because we know God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So once again, God can exalt us that he could be the one who lifts us up. So that once we get there, we won't be dependent and relying on him and we'll need to be brought down again and it starts all over. Is this, am I telling the truth? That's the cycle. That's the way it happens over and over again. It's the way it happens throughout history too. Whenever God comes, he brings the mountains down, he exalts the valleys. And the world where there is such inequality, such inequality between uh, gender, such inequality between, uh, based on where you live, where you're born so often determines whether or not you live or you die. In a world with such inequality, where we are in such uneven spaces, the way that this proclamation that God is coming will land in us is gonna be very, very different depending on where we're standing. I've been in Ireland this past week speaking. A couple other things too. I also did see you too the last night in Dublin. Just a footnote which if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, if you saw you two in Dublin, you would believe, you would be convinced, it would make a believer out of you. But that wasn't the real reason I came. I really, I did, I did come to speak and um, say more about that in a minute. But I was with my friend Nick Park, who is the overseer for the churches of God there, which there aren't many, but he's like the overseer and he pastors a local church uh, himself that's very international, really wonderful man. And as I was talking with Nick, he had just got back that earlier that day from a meeting of pastors across Europe um, who were really, really the whole topic was one thing. These were pastors who came from Germany, a lot from Germany, from the UK, from Ireland, Scotland. And they were really talking about 
everything that was happening with Syrian refugees, how much that's changing the character of their churches. Ireland has not received a lot of these refugees as of yet, but Germany uh, has received many of them. And of course, we know that the Syrian people are the most oppressed, uh, despised people on the planet in many ways. These are, you, you could not get more homeless. These, you talk about pilgrims and wanderers, folks that just have no space. They're coming into Germany in droves. And I'll keep in mind that these are churches throughout Europe that are in a thoroughly post-Christian reality. The church has essentially lost all influence in that culture. In Ireland, for example, uh, basically like maybe 5% of the population is involved with an evangelical or Protestant church. So that influence is waning. Uh, the, historically, it's been very Catholic. But in the wake of scandals in more recent years, that has decimated the church in Ireland. So you have these beautiful facilities. You have these grand cathedrals, all this history, all these monuments, all these markers. But a church that has next to no influence over culture that's being pushed increasingly underground. In fact, most of my friends I was with this week who are in full-time ministry, really they cobble together three or four jobs for a salary. Uh, or, or they're by vocational work at a, a job outside of ministry altogether or raise support. But almost nobody is able to make a living off of it because the scope of the church is so much smaller. So to bring that around to Germany, in these churches that are now, a lot of them have wonderful buildings but are very small, less than 100 people. One pastor, for example, told about how in recent weeks his church had almost doubled because of the refugees. They picked up like 30, 35 people. So for them, that was essentially doubling the church. Now, I'm imagining here, filling in some gaps, that when you're in a post-Christian culture where there's not a lot of influence and it's very difficult to kind of reach the people around you in your same social sphere, I wonder if it makes it more easy then, if you're more inclined to go run for the people who don't have a place and don't have a home and to welcome them in. At any rate, um, they're seeing this tremendous revival. They're seeing God do this extraordinary work. My friend Floyd McClung, who's been a missionary for 60 years, uh, for many years in Amsterdam in the Red Lake District working with hookers, incredible story about how God used him there, years in Afghanistan. And Floyd says that in his 60 years of missionary work, he has never seen a people as open to the gospel and as hungry for the gospel as he is Syrian refugees right now. This is the most extraordinary thing he's seen in 60 years of ministry. Now, that's not the kind of thing you're going to hear in the news, no matter what kind of news you listen to. You're not hearing that. But that's something of how God's working in the world. And I just thought about, I, I just thought about this, about how God is working among the people on the margins, the most forgotten about, the most displaced, how like the Lord that is. Even as I was in Ireland this week, you know, I was, uh, I was there largely, my friend Ferg Breen, pastors a church that's essentially a house church, right? And he's so, I can't stress this enough, he's so bright, he's so gifted, he's a great speaker, uh, he's a great worship leader. Somebody, if you dropped him in Oklahoma, would surely have a thriving church. And I mean, he's just, he just has all those kinds of gifts. But he pastors a church that basically meets in a living room. In fact, when we had church last Sunday, we were in a living room where I was sleeping, the couch there was a fold-out bed that I slept on, and we're in that room for church. Everybody's kind of crammed in like sardines. And I was just thinking we're in, in, in the space where, you know, not the most glamorous space I've ever spoken in, but has the, has the presence of God ever been richer than it was there? The way that we were encountering the spirit, we just, last Sunday, we met two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, two hours in the evening, just do worship, talk. And the, the, the way that God was moving in this sense of a church 
that it's not underground like they're in fear and terror. It's not like the gospel's not public, but they are kind of underground and they don't have any influence, you know? And it's like they're having to reinvent from the margins. And there's something about that that feels so exciting and risky and wonderful when you don't know where it's going, but you're just being faithful from these kind of marginal spaces. There's a purity to that. Monday night, I was actually speaking in a pub, which I have to say, again, not the glitziest um, stage, but easily one of my favorite speaking opportunities I've ever had. That's the truth. They had rented the downstairs of a pub, and it was funny, too, because while I was talking, they shot video on this and were showing me later. It was really funny because they, this place is all these craft beers. So the bartender's just, you know, you know, going back and forth, pouring the beers and take them out to people. That's all happening behind me while I'm speaking. But I was there. I have a book coming out next year called How to Survive a Shipwreck, and it's all about shipwreck and talking about my own and my own failure, my own loss, and encountering God in those places. And there was something that just felt so good to be, what more appropriate place than the pub? I'm sharing my brokenness. And then as people are so kind of opened up, they're sharing their brokenness. The question, the conversation, I mean, it was extraordinary. And I thought, I've never felt more at home than in this very foreign space speaking in a pub right now, which is wonderful. And I don't know, just all of that, it just kind of just keeps bringing this around for me, the sense of like, what does it looks like? Because I think especially our brothers and sisters in Europe are pioneering this for us. They are further into this post-Christian reality that we are heading into. And they're already figuring out how to carve out space in places that we have not been. We, especially those of us in North America, are so used to being in the place of influence and affluence. We're so used to everything coming easy. We're used to, you know, um, you can almost just put up a tent and have a megachurch and it'd be relatively easy. We're, we're used to, um, beyond the church, we're used to a certain kind of cultural influence. Even those who are the poorest in this room, listen to me right now, are so much more wealthy than almost anybody living in any other part of the world. We're so used to all of this. We're used to things coming so easy. We're used to being the biggest and the best and the brightest. And now we're in this season, I don't know how this feels for you, has there ever been a time in America in particular where things feel more unstable than they do right now? It feels frightening. We've never seen anything. None of us. None of us have lived long enough to see anything like what we're seeing right now with these mass shootings. We've never seen anything like it. And there's this hope, right, that something will turn the tide. There's this hope that somehow we could return to a place of stability. It feels like at times we're losing our grip, that for those of us who have known relatively comfortable lives, all that just keeps being disrupted by violence of all sorts. Where is it going? Where are we going to land? I would love to be able to tell you that it's going to get better before it gets worse. But my sense is, and I don't want this to be prophetic, but what I feel very deeply is that that's not the case. I think we're only going to see more violence. I think we're only going to see more chaos and whether you want to hear this or whether you don't, no matter who we elect this year, it's going to be the same. Once that kind of horror is unleashed in the world, it is not easy to put back into the box. There is a certain kind of chaos that is with us. And the fact of the matter is, no matter, there has never been an empire in the history of the world, no matter how great it was, no matter how prestigious, no matter what military might, no amount of wealth or prestige, there has never been an empire that has not eventually fallen. Everything that rises must one day fall. If, we don't believe, if you don't believe that, look at the Roman Empire. Indestructible. But there has never been a civilization, there's never been a social order that has been so big and strong that it stays on top forever. It just does not happen. 
Some of this isn't prophecy. It's more like physics, right? What goes up must come down. At some point, it just happens. It, it, it may not be able to be stopped. I don't want to hear this more than any more than anybody does, but that's just frank talk. It feels like in many ways there are things that are slipping away. And when we're in that place where we feel like we're losing our grip, we're losing control, we're losing a sense of order, we're, we're losing our influence, we're, we're losing power, security, all those things. What we want to do, of course, is to grasp for that. This is unfair. This cannot happen to us. It could happen, yeah, horrible things happen around the world, but this can't happen to us. This, this, this cannot be. And yet it seems like sometimes the more and more we grasp for that, the more desperate it becomes as we, as we try to work against it in some way. Where is it all going? What's happening? I just think the further we lose control, the more and more we lose our sense of order, the more and more the church loses its voice, which, you know, in many ways, um, maybe another story for another time, I'm just not nearly as bummed out about. I actually think that the more clear the contrast becomes between light and darkness, the better the opportunity is for the church to be the church. The church never really does well when we have a lot of power. Don't know if you've noticed. We don't know what to do with it. You give us power. You give us too much influence. We don't know what to do with that. God operates best from the margins. It's from the margins that God is always coming and working and surprising this story, once again, everything about Advent is about how God comes and sneaks in and works in surprising ways. The trouble with us, who have lived in a very tightly ordered world, is that we're past the sense that God can surprise us. We think we know more than we know. We think we know more than we actually know about God. We think we know more than we actually know about how the world works. We're beyond surprise. Even Advent and Easter, I think, for that matter, in the church can often feel kind of anticlimactic because we know the end of the story. Oh, we're going to light our Advent candles. Well, guess what? By the end, they'll all be lit and Jesus will be born. We know this happens. We already believe that. When it comes to Easter, by the time we get to the end, a little anticlimactic sometimes because we already know he's risen from the dead. We're past surprise in some way, you know? We have this sense that somehow we, we have a handle on all of it. What... What's so unfortunate about this is that when we become the kinds of people who think that we know too much, that we think we're somehow past the surprise, even while we're sitting here and we're listening to messages about Jesus and Advent and incarnation and all that, in a weird way, we're sort of inoculating ourselves against the capacity that God might do this again. It's, it's troubling when we think we know more than we actually know. Let me put it like this. So we have these accounts over and over again in the Gospels, right, where we see that the people who studied the Bible the hardest, they spent the most time learning about God, oriented all of their lives around Scripture, looking for the Messiah to come. And who missed the Messiah the most brazenly? Then the people who were looking, searching, could could do crossword puzzles with Torah law, right? And yet we think we're so much more enlightened. We have podcasts. We have so many books. We have seminaries. A lot of you have been to Oral Roberts University. I, I've been to seminary too, right? We have so much training. We think we know how the story ends. We think we know where it's going. We think we know everything there is to know about God and the world and all that. Where we think that if God's going to come in our time now, if God's going to interrupt our space now, we think it's not going to surprise us. We think we understand it. 
we think we have our minds around it. The bad news for us is whenever God appears, it is always in the places that we least expect. Whoever God works through, it is always through the people we least expect. Whatever God does, I promise you, wherever God comes from, it's not in the place that you're looking now because that's just the way it, is anybody hearing what I'm saying? The moment that you think you have it understood, the moment that you have these firm expectations, God is guaranteed to blow those things up. It's just what God does. There's not a better case for this, ironically enough, than John the Baptist. Now, John is fascinating to me, really one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. You have this man who uh, was, now, I'm going to speak as a Pentecostal here. You talk about being full of the Holy Ghost. You talk about being full of power. This is how full of power John the Baptist is. When Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and John is still inside Elizabeth's womb, he leaps inside of her. I mean, Jesus is not even born yet. And he leaps. Now think about that. So he didn't yet have rational thought. He had never opened his eyes. He didn't have words, and he recognized Jesus inside the womb. That's a next-level anointing right there, people. That's Holy Ghost power. It's when you recognize Jesus when you're still inside the womb. You don't get more powerful than John the Baptist. You don't get more anointed than John the Baptist. As an adult, he's the first person to recognize Jesus for who he really is. He's baptizing people along the River Jordan, and when Jesus comes, John's the one who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is the one who recognized Jesus when nobody else recognizes Jesus. He's the one who discerns what God is doing and how God is present when no one else is able to discern it. And yet just a couple of years after, John the Baptist recognizes the adult Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He himself is in prison. And he has this moment where he sends his disciples to Jesus and they come and they say, "Um, hey Jesus, John the Baptist sent us. You may have heard he's in jail. He has a question. John wants to know, are you actually the Messiah? Are you really the one who's coming or should we be looking for somebody else? Now that's the one who recognized Jesus in the womb. (laughs) The way I always read that story before is I read as a story about how like, well, everybody doubts. Everybody has a doubting season. That may be true, but I don't really think at this point that's what's happening in that text. We think John the Baptist was probably part of a particular religious sect called the Essenes. These were devout Jews who, went, who left the city, went into the wilderness, specifically to the Qumran community where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. John was likely one of these people. They were, we, we might call them monks. There were these strict ascetic practices. They were denying themselves. They were studying texts day and night. They were all about ritual purity. And they were looking for a Messiah that would come and restore that kind of ritual purity to Israel, that would bring that kind of cleansing, get people to follow the law again. I think what happens with John is not so much that he just doubts in the way that everybody doubts. I think that even though John was the person who leapt inside his mother's womb the moment Jesus appeared, and even though John was the person who recognized Jesus as an adult when nobody else recognized him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I think even John had his own expectations for what kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. And now he's hearing reports about who Jesus is hanging out with, how he's spending his time around the table and who he's spending that kind of time with. 
the disreputable people. Jesus is at work among the margins. Jesus is at work among the outcasts of society. He is not putting, putting together a military movement that's going to overthrow Rome. He's not putting together a temple movement that's going to restore ritual purity. He seems to be bucking those laws even worse. And I think John gets so disillusioned because Jesus isn't meeting the expectations for the kind of Messiah he thought he would be that that's what produces the moment where he says, are you really the guy? Or should we be looking for somebody else? So to bring this full circle, if John the Baptist, who recognized Jesus in the womb, and was the one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, ended up doubting Jesus and almost missing what God was doing in the world through Jesus because he didn't fit his expectations, how much more so do you think that you and I are occupying the same space. How wrong are our expectations? How much are we setting ourselves up for disillusionment in all the ways that we think we understand who God is and how God's gonna work in the world? We think we understand who God is and what he's up to. We think we know what kind of move of God we need. We think we know where God is supposed to show up. We think we know what God is supposed to do. What if, like John the Baptist, that our own expectations are actually crippling us for what's coming. Because whenever God comes, this is again is what Advent is about, it's guaranteed to bring disruption. The mountains will be brought low. The valleys will be exalted. It will disrupt the social order. It will disrupt life as we know it. It will disrupt the world as we have understood it. If John the Baptist almost missed it, how much more so are we? I wonder where in my life right now God is at work in the margins and I'm just not looking for him. I wonder where in my world right now God is at work, that God is coming, but I'm unable to discern it. I wonder what in the days ahead it's gonna look like for us who have thought we had a firm grasp on how it is that God is supposed to work in the world. I wonder how it is that God wants to astonish us even now. I wonder how it is that God wants to shatter our expectations all over again. The thing about it is, while we know that John the Baptist has this kind of disillusionment with Jesus, does it, this, this doubt that comes later because he's not meeting his expectations, that's not just the story of John the Baptist. That's true for everyone who follows Jesus in the Gospels. Because all of them had some sense that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the anointed one, is going to restore Israel once again as a nation state to a kind of place of prosperity and prominence. They believed they were going to get out from under the thumb of the Roman Empire. I don't know why I feel like leaning into this so hard in this service, but please keep this in mind. They thought this because they were reading their Bible and they knew those texts. This is what it will look like for God to come in power. This is what it looks like, will look like for the Messiah to come and restore the kingdom of Israel. They were quoting Bible verses they thought they knew. And everybody gets disillusioned with how he dies. That's the moment when it seems certain that he must not be the person. Because in the kind of death that Jesus dies, it's so disreputable, it's so lowly, it's so, it's so despicable in human eyes. Surely this is not the one. I know it might seem a little strange when we're talking about Advent to be talking about the cross. And yet, in this service, like we do every service, we will end by coming to the table of God. 
And there are ways that these things are deeply related. It is the cross, more so than anything else, that brings the fulfillment of this Advent message. That how God works is going to be messy, disruptive, surprising, is utter, gonna utterly defy our logic, our reason, our rationale, our expectations for how he should work. Reading an excerpt from this book, Unapologetic, why despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. That is a great title. Francis Spufford writes this about the crucifixion. Daylight finds him in a procession again, but this time no one could mistake him for a king. He's stumbling along under the weight of his own instrument of execution, a great big wooden thing he can hardly lift, with an escort of the Empire soldiers and the bystanders who've come blinking out of the lodgings where they spent the festival night don't now see their hopes or even the possibility of their hopes parading by. They see their disappointment. They see their frustration. They see everything in themselves that is too weak or too afraid to confront the strapping paratroopers. And much as though they hate the soldiers, they hate him even more for his pathetic slide into victimhood. Word of his loose living, his impiety, his pleasure in bad company goes round in whispers. And just look at him. There's something disgusting about him, don't you think? Something that makes you squirm inside. Something furtive. He's so pale and sickly looking with that dried blood round his mouth. He looks like a pedophile being led away by the police. He looks like something from under a rock as if he doesn't deserve the daylight. He's a blot on the new day. Someone kicks him as he goes by and whoops, down he goes, flat on his nose with the cross pinning him like a struggling insect. And let's face it, it's funny. Yeshua... Jesus is a joke. He's less a Messiah, more a patch of something nasty on the pavement. And as he struggles on, he recognizes every roaring, jeering face. He knows our names. He knows our histories. And since as well as being a weak and frightened man, he's also the love that makes the world, to whom all times and places are equally present. He isn't just feeling the anger and spite and unbearable self-disgust of this one crowd on this one Friday morning in Palestine. He's turning his bruised face towards the whole human crowd, past and present and to come, and accepting everything we have to throw at him, everything we fear we deserve ourselves. The doors of his heart are wedged open wide, and in rushes the whole pestilential flood, the vile and roiling tides of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, he is saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. I am big enough. I am wide enough. I am not what you were told. I am not your king or your judge. I am the father who longs for every last one of his children. I am the friend who will never leave you. I am the light behind the darkness. I am the shining your shame cannot extinguish. I am the ghost of love in the torture chamber. I am change and hope. I am the refining fire. I am the door where you thought there was only wall. I am what comes after deserving. I am the earth that drinks up the bloodstain. I am gift without cost. I am, I am, 
I am. Before the foundations of the world, I am. God is coming once again, but he will come in the same way he always has, in a way that's guaranteed to defy every single one of our expectations, in a way that will surprise us, astonish us, baffle us, trouble us. God is coming, and he's bringing disruption. The question for us as we enter into Advent is whether or not we will make room for the disruption whether or not we are willing to expect the unexpected, whether or not we're willing to yield our expectations and be awake and alert again for the God who's promised to come, but in ways that are guaranteed to defy our expectations. Stand with me, if you would. Let's make the table ready. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.